Now, if you would, take a copy of God's Word and turn to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Turn to chapter 8 if you're using a pew Bible. It is found on page 230. For the last several weeks, we've been in the book of 1 Samuel, which puts us about 3,000 years ago. It's during the Iron Age, about 1,000 years roughly before Christ. We've covered the first seven chapters um, over the course of the last year, occasionally dipping in to this book. The first seven chapters was the story of the prophet and judge Samuel. Chapters 9 through 15 will come to the story of Saul, the first king of Israel. Today is chapter 8, and this is what some people have said, one of the more important chapters in the history of Israel, because here is the transition to the monarchy. It's the transition from being a tribal confederation to the institution of kings ruling over the nation of Israel. Now, this was already foreshadowed in the book in chapter 2. So, if you would hold your place there in chapter 8 and turn over to chapter 2. Here, the chapter begins with Samuel's mom, Hannah, and her prayer. This prayer is the prototype of the prayer that Mary, the mother of Jesus, prayed, the Magnificat. And there in verse 10 of chapter 2, look there for a moment. There it says, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Now listen to what Hannah prays. And he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So this was a development anticipated in the book itself. There foreshadowed in her prayer. Now turn back to chapter 8. There in Hannah's prayer, if we were to read the whole thing, she talks about the Lord's sovereignty. She talks about the reversal of human fortunes and the theme of kingship there to close her prayer. And so now we come to the place in 1 Samuel where we see the beginning of kingship over Israel. Before we read God's word, let us go to him and ask for his help and blessing this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Our great God and Savior, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we come this morning and we know we need to trust you with all our heart. We ask for your help. We ask that the preaching of your word would build confidence in your promises, in your character. We ask that we would leave behind our own understanding and not depend upon it, but look to you, that we would acknowledge you in all that we do, trusting that you will make straight our paths. God, we ask as we come to your word this morning that we would not be wise in our own eyes, that we would worship and reverently adore you, that we would rightly fear you, that we would turn away from evil. We ask that by your spirit working among us, you would make 
known to us the path of life, that we would know the fullness of joy in your presence this morning. Help us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Hear the word of God from 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us, like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipments of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. This is high school graduation season. Once again, congratulate all our high school graduates. Many of the graduates this year were born 
most likely between the years 2000 and 2001. That means that Tom Brady has been the quarterback for the New England Patriots for their entire lives. He is now 41 years old, which is ancient for an NFL quarterback. He has been the starting quarterback for 17 seasons. He has played in nine Super Bowls. And whether you are a fan of his or not, it is a remarkable athletic accomplishment. But one day, hopefully, one day, Tom Brady will be too old to play quarterback and win Super Bowls. He'll need to be replaced. The prophet Samuel was kind of like the Tom Brady of judges over Israel. Or maybe we should say Tom Brady is the Samuel of NFL quarterbacks. Chapter 7 says that Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Samuel had quite a run. But as one commentator put it, Samuel did have a problem. He was mortal. Who will lead when Samuel is gone? What we see happen here in chapter 8, rather than wait on God to replace Samuel, the elders of Israel decide to take matters into their own hands. So in chapter 8 this morning, I want us to see the first thing, the demand for a new king. Then I want us to think about the description of life under a king. And lastly, we will see the determination to have a king. The demand for a new king. Look at verses 1 through 9 again in chapter 8 with me. Now, some time has passed between Samuel being established and leading God's people into victory as their new judge and as the prophet, as the leader of God's people in chapter 7. But we come to chapter 8 and in narrative distance, they've been placed right next to each other. It goes from Samuel's leadership and God keeping their enemies out to now this shocking and somewhat foreboding development. But there is a real problem facing Israel. It's a, it's a twofold problem. The first one that's identified is the sons of Samuel. In verse 3, it says, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Samuel named his sons Joel and Abijah. And the, the J part of their name, the Ja and Joel, they were godly names. It was drawing on, in the Hebrew, the name Yahweh. Samuel is not blamed for his son's perversion. If we, as we read in the chapter, God said, they are not rejecting you. And God did not condemn Samuel. God said, they're rejecting me. So here's a faithful man with unfaithful sons. It's interesting. Throughout the book of Samuel, there's these father-son relationships. First, we met Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, and 
Eli did not rebuke his sons, and his sons led to great sin and to great judgment against Eli's household and the nation. And here Samuel is not faithful. He is faithful, but his sons are not. He's established them as leaders in Beersheba. This is on the, the southern border of Israel at the time. And as he was getting older, he hoped that his sons would follow in his footsteps. But as they're out of the eyesight of their dad, as they are far away and given their post, they don't remain faithful. And they're taking bribes and perverting justice. And one of the interesting turns in the book of Samuel we will eventually see is that Saul turns out to be an unrighteous king, the first king of Israel, but his son Jonathan becomes a model of faith and in some ways the most consistently Christ-like figure in the book of Samuel. And then in King David, his own son Absalom rebels against him and nearly takes the throne from his father. Immediately, once again in the book of Samuel, here in the first three verses, we're asked to think about our children. And God's sovereign election and purposes for our kids is put before us. And it's a sobering comfort, and it may not be for much consolation now, but even the faithful Samuel's sons walk away from the Lord. It's a reminder to be in much prayer for our kids. That was the first problem facing Israel. Samuel's sons weren't worthy leaders. The second was that now there's a new enemy on the horizon, the Ammonites. It's not in the passage, but we find out later in Samuel's farewell address in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 2, he tells the nation, and when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. We find out there that there was an enemy threatening them. And the people, they looked at Samuel and said, how long can you lead us? We can't place our confidence in your sons to be the kind of leaders that you are. We need a king. Now, the request for a king was not completely wrong. Remember, Hannah prayed for God's anointed king that would come. Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, the period preceding the period that 1 Samuel covers, says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There the Holy Spirit, through the human author, is pointing out part of the, the problem and part of the spiritual chaos in Israel is that they needed a righteous king who would restrain lawlessness, who would lead them in following God's law. Then, going back even further, to the period of the patriarchs with Abraham. As God promised Abraham, do you remember he also promised that from him would come kings? In Genesis 17, 16, God speaking of Sarah says, I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. 
I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. God told Abraham's grandson, Jacob, in Genesis 35, 11, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. That was on the occasion when God gave Jacob the name Israel. And he said, kings will come from you. When Jacob blesses his son Judah in Genesis 49.10, what does he tell him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. In Exodus 19.6, as God's people are led out of slavery in Egypt by God's mighty hand, as they're heading towards the promised land, what does God tell the people through Moses? You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This tribal confederation of the 12 tribes was also a kingdom. And God had promised a king to lead them. And Moses told them that when you get a king, this is what you should look for in a king. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And you shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, listen to this, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." God was always the king over his people. And he was preparing them for the day in which his son would be king and rule over his people. So that God would allow there to be a monarchy is not a, a plan B by God. It is something that God had intended from the very beginning. And there in Deuteronomy he said it's to be one who is among you, a Hebrew, one who is not greedy, and then one who is guided by the word of God. The king was to take God's law and write it by hand and then show it to the priests, and they were to make sure that he had a good copy for himself, and he was to read it daily. This was God's intention to rule his people as a theocracy. A theocracy means that God rules as king, and he reigns through divinely appointed leaders. We see it through priests, prophets, judges, and he intended to do it through a king. 
So the problem with the elders' request was not asking for a king in this passage. The problem was that they weren't asking for a theocratic monarchy. There in Deuteronomy, it anticipated that they would look at the nations and say, we need a king. And then God said, this is the type of king you need to have. They said, we need a king. They looked at the nations, and they did not go to Deuteronomy and say, this is the type of king we need. They said, we want one like those nations. They were asking for a substitute for God's reign over them. And the passage tells us that explicitly in verse 7 again. Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Samuel brings the request of the people to God. And what does God tell Samuel? It's not you, it's me. John Woodhouse comments, here's the struggle for being a theocracy. Kings offer a strong, stable, predictable center of a political authority for a nation. For a nation that otherwise had to depend on an unseen God to unite them, to lead them, to defend them. They are rejecting God as king. And in doing so, they are rejecting his constitution to rule and reign over them, his word. Here they're the state of their heart is revealed. And God analyzes his own people in verse 8. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also doing to you. The data shows that they are a people who are quick to misplace their trust in God. And God has been rescuing them, rescuing them, says, okay, I'm going to give them what they ask for. Every time they, they, they face uncertainty, they are quick to look to place their trust in something other than me. So I'm going to give them a, a, a taste of what that is like. And here, there's uncertainty again. There's the threat. There's no clear leader. And they are quick to misplace their trust. We are not immune to uncertainty. And we are not immune to uncertainty undermining our trusting our almighty God. We need to learn from the Israelites' examples here. That in times of uncertainty, the temptation is to prescribe to God how he should help us. We've seen that already in the book of Samuel, and we see it again. Instead of prescribing to him, we need to do as we just sang and say, be still my soul and wait on his promises. When faced with uncertainty, oftentimes we put our circumstances under a microscope. And we need to step back and see the big picture. Instead of a microscope, we need a panoramic lens. And we look at the whole of Scripture and we say, so far, what promise has God failed to keep? 
There are promises that haven't been fulfilled, but they haven't been fulfilled yet. But the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of the church through the ages is that this king that they're rejecting is a promise-keeping king. In the midst of uncertainty, he was the answer. There are promises of God that haven't been fulfilled yet, but his track record is pretty good so far. Then God answers Samuel and he tells him three things. In his answer, he says, Samuel, you have not failed. Obey their voice and give them a king. And then warn them about the king they're asking for. And we see that in verses 10 through 18. The description of life under a king. Now the main warning in the Hebrew is the word, the verb take. It appears more in our English translation, but it's there four times in the Hebrew, the word take. In verses 11 through 12, we see that the king they're asking for is going to take their sons and their daughters. This king will take their family. He'll take what is most precious to them. In verses 14 through 17, this king will take their property, their finances, their business. And then the climax of the warning about this king that takes and will take is in verse 17. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. The Lord is making very clear to the elders of Israel, this is what you're asking for. This is the exchange. There's the uncertainty of who God will raise up next to lead his people or the king who will take. And then in verse 18, did you notice? And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Here, now it's turned. The people of God used to cry out because of the kings of the foreign nations that were coming and fighting against them and oppressing them. And he says, the king you're asking for, you will cry out to God because of him. Old Testament scholar Bill Arnold says, this is characteristic of kings in the ancient Near East. They were parasitic rather than giving. And this is what can be expected from any king that is not God. This is what can be expected of any king in a fallen world. The history of the world is filled with stories of kings, emperors, prime ministers, presidents, mayors, governors, representatives, senators, school principals, and even pastors who are corrupted by power. And who do not lead and serve for the good of the people they've been entrusted to their care. But their sinfulness and their selfishness dictates their leadership. And that's why we should make it a regular practice to pray for civic leaders. No matter where you lie on the political spectrum. You are first and foremost a kingdom of the citizens. Uh, a citizen of the kingdom of God. And no matter who, whether it's your opponent, your foe, or your team is in office, we are to pray for our civic leaders. We are to pray that God would restrain their selfishness and their greed 
that they would not be corrupted by power, but as the Apostle Paul instructs us, we are to pray for their salvation in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And of course, as Christians, this doesn't mean that the temptation to be corrupted by power as Samuel's sons were bribed and perverted justice, it doesn't mean that we are to avoid leadership. In fact, speaking of leadership in the church, 1 Timothy said that men who aspire to the office of an overseer, they desire a noble task. We are to, as Christian leaders, in the realm in which we've been given oversight and authority, we are to strive to be like the king described by Moses in Deuteronomy 14. In verse 19, that we are to take God's word and read it, and read it all the days of our life, that we may learn to fear the Lord, our God, that we would live under his constitution, and that our leadership would reflect his holy law. And of course, as Christian leaders, we are to look to King Jesus for the example of a king. If in verses 10 through 18, we have the picture of the king who takes, we get a different picture in the scriptures of Jesus as king. He's the king who was promised in the line of David, 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 16. God told King David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And your throne shall be established forever. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 9 verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And, make, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The prophet Micah chapter 5 verse 2. O Bethlehem who are too little among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, who is coming forth from of old, from of ancient of days. Who is the one that God told David about? Who is the one that Isaiah prophesied about, that Micah prophesied about? Well, we met him in the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And what kind of king is King Jesus? Well, remember that as he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, as they are shouting Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It is fulfilled what the prophet said of King Jesus. Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He's a king unlike any king the world has ever seen and will ever see. 
William Blake, he says, if there be anything more than another that makes this king glorious, it is his giving nature. The kings of this world take, but Jesus, the king of kings, gives. He told the woman at the well in John 4.10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. John 10.10, Jesus, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. On the night when he was betrayed, as he institutes the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. This king did not come to be served, but to give his life as a ransom. There's a clear contrast here. The king described in chapter 8 tells us of Christ, but by the way of contrast. But there is something that this king shares in common. This king, Jesus, doesn't demand less than the kings of the world. The difference is that he doesn't demand more than he has already given. And in response of his giving of himself for his people in their place, for their sins, we gladly come and lay everything at his feet. And so the kings of the world want to take your sons and daughters and put them in their service and put them on their front lines. But we gladly come to King Jesus and lay our sons and daughters before them and say, take them to the ends of the world for the advance of your kingdom, if that is your will. We take our businesses, our properties, all that belongs to us, and we gladly put it at the feet of the king who gave us all for us. One king takes all that is ours. The other king gives all that is his. It's King Jesus. Which king are you living under today? Finally, in verses 19 through 22, we see the people's determination to have a king. They resist the word of Samuel. It wasn't a popular response. He gave them the warning, and they respond. And they very clearly let him know, we have made our decision. The personal plural pronouns, we, our, us, appear seven times in the Hebrew in verses 19 through 22. They're making it very clear. We're not changing our minds. We believe we know what's best for us. He's told them that the king will be self-serving, self-centered, self-assured. And they are somehow convinced that this is in their best self-interest. They say in verse 20, we want a king who will go out before us and fight our battles. Samuel just told them, yeah, the king is going to take your sons and he's going to put them in his chariots and he's going to put them on the front line. But what the elders have shown is they've betrayed their, their desire. They said, no, we believe that there is more security in a human king than there is as having God as our king. They're willing to give up their own 
sons and daughters for that security. The desire for security in a fallen world is luring them away from trusting God as their king. We close with thinking, where does your security come from? Who or what do you look to for security? We're tempted to look to bank accounts, health coverage, education, insurance plans, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a fiance, a spouse. We're tempted to look to politicians and governments. And God, in His kindness, will sometimes give you what you think you need to show you what you, what you really need is Him. Let me say it again. God, in His kindness, will sometimes give you what you think you need to show you what you really need is Him. He will give you a king of your own choosing so that when that king fails you, you will see the beauty of King Jesus. You'll see the beauty of the king who's given all for his people. The Apostle Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. God, in a hard kindness to some of you, has given you the king you asked for. And the purpose is so that you would see Jesus and you would say with the Apostle Paul, I leave it all behind for that king, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you, the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. And this morning we say, be all honor and glory forever and ever. May we not be like the elders in the nation of Israel here. May we pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love. May we not be like them and be so quick to turn away, but that we would fight the good fight of faith, taking hold of eternal life. And by the power of your Spirit, seek to keep your commands until the appearing of King Jesus. We're reminded that earthly kings are temporary. Even the best of them are flawed. And our security and our hope and confidence is in the sovereign King of Kings, Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. And it's to Him we say, be all honor and eternal dominion forever. In Christ's name we pray, amen.